I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And I'm Rory Spiegel. And this is the Journal Journal Jam Jam Podcast. Podcast. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high-quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. When I asked a dozen or so ED docs, internists, ID specialists, and intensivists whether or not they use steroids for community-acquired pneumonia, or CAP, we're going to call it from now on, I didn't receive one definitive, clear answer. But when I asked them whether or not they would use steroids for COVID pneumonia, they all clearly and definitively said a resounding yes. And most of them added that it was the only drug that was effective for COVID pneumonia. So this got me thinking, what are the indications for steroids in patients with pneumonia besides those with concurrent COPD exacerbations and adrenal patients? This is the journal jam. So the other question we're going to ask is, what's the evidence for benefit for steroids in CAP? What's the evidence for benefit for steroids in the flu? And what's the evidence for benefit for steroids in COVID pneumonia? And if there is benefit, does that benefit outweigh the potential harms? So to help sort this out, we have the mighty return of a special guest to Journal Jam, Dr. Andrew Morris, infectious disease specialist and head of antimicrobial stewardship at Mount Sinai Health Systems and University Health Network in Toronto. He's sitting in for Rory Spiegel, who's currently swamped with clinical work and couldn't join us this time around. Now, the way this podcast is going to flow is that we'll start with the evidence for steroids in community-acquired pneumonia, then move on to influenza, and finally talk about COVID. So, Justin, let's start things off a little bit differently this time. Rather than going back and starting with the first study and looking at each study historically going forward, let's start with a meta-analysis of studies on CAP and steroids, and then we'll dig into the trials. Justin, go for it. Yes, you know, I've been hearing about steroids and pneumonia for years, and I keep meaning to do a deep dive. I've read a few trials here and there, and none of them really uh, convinced me. And we can come back and talk about some of the reasons later. But I never actually looked at one of the meta-analyses until I was preparing for this episode. And now that I have, I I have to say, I am really surprised that this practice isn't more widespread. Yeah, me too. So just hit us with the quick summary of the Cochrane meta-analysis, Justin. Yeah, so back in 2011, Cochrane did a review and concluded there was benefit, decreased need for mechanical ventilation, decreased progression to ARDS, and decreased hospital length of stay with steroids. There was a bit of an increase in hyperglycemia, but overall, those results sounded pretty promising. And, you know, even looking at all-cause mortality, it wasn't statistically different, but it came close. The Relative risk was 0.7, but the 95% confidence interval just touched one, but didn't go over one. You know, that's a result that often gets people really excited in medicine, even if it's statistically insignificant. Then if you fast forward to 2017, there's a new Cochrane review. They added 12 new RCTs, and now there is a statistical difference in mortality. 5% versus 8%, that's a relative risk of 66%. It's statistically significant. Now think about all the treatments we do in medicine, how often we rush to treatments that don't even have a mortality benefit. And this Cochrane review really makes me surprised that steroids aren't much more widely prescribed for more pneumonia, but actually that might end up being a good thing because the meta-analysis isn't always the best source of knowledge. 
Yeah, I mean, we've said this before on Journal Jam. Most of those EBM pyramids have the systematic review and meta-analysis sitting right at the top, you know, implying that they're the best evidence. But that doesn't mean that the results of the meta-analysis are always right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So meta-analysis really just cram a bunch of studies together. And But if those studies weren't good in the first place, cramming them together isn't going to make them any better. So just looking here, there were 17 studies in total, but there's only 2,200 patients. So that is an average of about 130 patients per trial. So these are small trials. That always means that there's a high risk for bias. And the Cochrane Review does agree. It says that these trials have some significant possible sources of bias. The small trials also mean that something like publication bias is a lot more likely. It's way easier for a 100-person trial to stay unpublished than it is for a 1,000-person trial. So personally, whenever I am trying to figure out whether I trust the results of a systematic review, I think it's really important to get back and actually read some of the individual trials first to get a sense of their quality and to get a sense of whether I actually trust their results. Andrew, what's uh, your take on the the meta-analyses, the Cochrane stuff? Well, you know, in general, I'm a fan of data synthesis because it does make it easier for us to understand the, I guess, the totality of evidence in a objective way. But I certainly agree with Justin. One of the problems with it is in some ways it may even hide what is poor quality data by including it into a synthesized work and then people stop looking at the quality of the papers themselves. I think the other thing that it does is it can in some ways overweight larger studies, especially when you have, as in this situation, a large collection of small studies, many of which I'm going to say are actually of rather poor quality, that then get added into this uh, larger body of work and, and lead us to perhaps erroneous or at least less than definitive conclusions. I think it's a good idea to try and get an idea of the current real world practice out there when it comes to steroids for pneumonia. I mean, I can't personally even remember the last time I added steroids to antibiotics for patients with pneumonia in the ED who weren't COPDers or chronically on on steroids. I'm just sort of an N of one. So Andrew, what what is the real world practice uh, in Ontario at least? Yeah, we, we actually don't have great data at present to tell us what the real world practice is. But being somebody who is on the ground and speaks to a lot of colleagues, not only infectious disease colleagues, but, um, you know, I practice as a general internist and interface with uh, many other general internists as well as intensivists and eMERGE docs. I think I can comfortably say that in Ontario, steroids for pneumonia is generally not widely adopted. There are absolutely some colleagues who are fervent believers in this, and that includes emergency physicians, general internists, and intensivists. So really the spectrum of people who'd be taking care of patients with pneumonia, but they're definitely in the minority. And what about south of the border? I mean, I would think that in the US, they're a bit more gung-ho about steroids and CAP. Yeah, I think you'll find that it's uh, patchy and um, there will certainly be uh, regions or areas or even just certain centers where uh, steroids are widely adopted. And then in other places, you'll find the same thing that uh, it isn't widely adopted. A while ago, I participated in a, a kind of journal club uh, south of the border. And certainly from all the participants, uh, you know, the controversy is definitely one that uh, exists both uh, north and south of this border. Justin, let's get into the trials. 
All right, so let's start with uh, Confalionary in 2005. So it's a multicenter RCT that randomized ICU patients with pneumonia to either hydrocortisone or placebo. In this in this trial, the results were dramatic. So mortality was 30% in the placebo group, and it was only 0% in the hydrocortisone group. So, you know, that sounds like we found the silver bullet. This is better than vitamin C in sepsis. It sounds like nobody is ever going to die again, except, of course, I don't really believe these results at all. So they only have about 46 patients in this trial, despite running at six hospitals for three years. So that's just two and a half patients a year at each hospital. And this is pneumonia. How is that even possible? And then if you look a little bit further, the groups aren't really balanced. The placebo group was seven years older than the treatment group, among number a number of other differences. So their randomization doesn't seem like it worked either. Yeah, I mean, claiming 0% mortality in any ICU patient with pneumonia sounds pretty much near impossible. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, for this trial, I think maybe the most important thing is that they actually admit to something we call p-hacking right in their method section. They don't have a sample size. What they say is that they're just going to check the data every 20 patients until their primary outcome is accomplished. But you can't do that because by chance alone, a p-value is going to look positive at some point. And obviously, you only stop the trial at the one time you checked and the p-value looked good. So this is why trials have to have predefined endpoints, because if you do it this way, our stats are completely meaningless. So to me, this is a very low quality trial. There's no way that I believe these results uh, here. And I think that's pretty important because this trial is included in that Cochrane meta-analysis. And if you just look at the Cochrane review, you can't really tell how bad this trial is. And as we've said, that's sort of one of the problems with meta-analyses in general. Yeah, garbage in, garbage out, right? Yeah, but maybe one last thing worth mentioning, because it's going to matter for all of these papers. So this trial wasn't registered on anything like clinicaltrials.gov. And, you know, that makes me a little bit worried. How many other small little trials like this were done but never got published? Because, you know, if you don't show a 30% mortality benefit, your poorly designed trial really isn't that exciting, and you're going to likely get rejected by a lot of journals. So there might be other hidden trials out there, and that would really shape the results of a meta-analysis. Not only is there a challenge with the registration of the trials and some of the concerns regarding possible enrollment and conduct, but almost uniformly for almost all these steroid randomized controlled trials, what you see is this very slow enrollment where sensors only enroll a few cases per year. And when you see that, in my mind, what you identify right away is that this isn't really randomization. As soon as you start having a very selective group who are enrolled into a trial, it is no longer randomized. It's a highly selective group, and the whole concept of randomization goes out the window. Like so many treatments in medicine that we adapt really quickly, there's one poorly done study that gets a lot of airtime for whatever reason and kicks off this sort of cascade of practice-changing behavior, only to find through more rigorous studies that the conclusions of the so-called original landmark study were completely wrong. Justin, what's the next trial? So the next one is Mavis in 2011. It's an RCT, 304 adult patients this time with community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, They're looking at a healthier population here, so you had to be admitted to the hospital, but the ICU patients were specifically excluded And then they compared uh, dexamethasone, a pretty low dose, 5 milligrams a day, to placebo. Now, this is a positive trial. Their primary outcome was hospital length of stay, and it was statistically better. It was 6.5 versus 7.5 days. 
However, there were no differences in the things that I really care about, like mortality, ICU admission, or readmission to hospital. And hospital length of stay is sort of a really interesting outcome when you're trying to think about steroids. Yeah, the hospital length of stay one, that's the one that administrators like. I mean, I think most administrators would say that hospital length of stay is a very important outcome, but you know, I suppose that's a matter of opinion. I think patients would care as well. If I was admitted to hospital, I would want to be discharged as soon as humanly possible. But it's complicated in steroids because steroids change a lot of things, right? So if you give patients steroids, we can expect that they're going to have less fever. Their heart rate might come down. And those things themselves then might influence decisions about whether the patient should be sent home. In other words, there are confounders here. And so the decision to discharge somebody home is, you know, rather subjective. So although this is a positive trial, it's not really all that convincing to me that steroids truly help, at least in this healthier population. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. It's really hard to know what the most important outcome, apart from a mortality endpoint, is when you're um, evaluating community-acquired pneumonia. You know, we know for most patients who get admitted to hospital outside of the ICU, they don't end up dying. And so we do have to start thinking about what will be the benefit of a treatment and what's meaningful for the patient, the provider, the system. And those may not all be the same. What does make it really difficult to figure out is, as you pointed out, are these true confounders? Or in fact, do these treatments, in this case, steroids, make patients better, allow us to get them out of hospital without making an appreciable dent on mortality because it's such a low mortality rate to start off with. I mean, I I think that's so important, especially with all the COVID trials that are going on right now. The question is, are are we just trying to get patients to euboxemia, right? If a patient has a heart rate of 102, should we just be sending them home or do we really need the steroids to make their heart rate perfect so that they're perfectly able to go home? And that's just hard to pick out. I, I don't know if these are making the patient better or whether they're just letting us check off tick boxes on our on our chart. No, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, it's a good point about the mortality rate is quite low to begin with for community-acquired pneumonia. And so it's much harder to show a mortality difference unless you have a massive study. So, I mean, I'll give these these studies that benefit of the doubt at least. Patients who are largely admitted to hospital nowadays with non-COVID pneumonia tend to have other reasons to stay in hospital. And many of the studies that get included um, don't necessarily look at length of stay, but they, in fact, focus more on time to clinical stability. And it's not only steroid trials, it's other, you know, antibiotic uh, trials and one regimen versus another. And if you can get somebody clinically stable, but it doesn't get them out of hospital because of the other comorbidities, then it really hasn't achieved much that we initially intended because many people interpret time to clinical stability as meaning able to get them home, but often that isn't the case. Yeah. Again, that's where the confounding variables come in. There's so many confounding variables that some of these measures are are really hard to nail down and say whether they're actually meaningful or not. What's our next study? I'm hoping this one's a good quality one. 
<laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. So we'll go through this one really quickly because unfortunately it's a really low quality study. It's Nafe 2013. Uh, it's published in the Egyptian Journal of Chest Diseases and Tuberculosis, which isn't on PubMed. And so that's a bit of a red flag to begin with. Honestly, this is one of those studies that I would have just skipped over, ignored, but it makes up 12% of the weighted analysis in the Cochrane Review. So it has a pretty big influence on the end results of that systematic review. So this is an RCT. It was only single blind. They at no point state a primary outcome. There was no sample size calculation and the trial wasn't registered. So when you put that all together, bias and p-hacking are a, a big concern here. In total, they had 80 hospitalized adult patients with uh, community-acquired pneumonia. They compared good doses of hydrocortisone, 200 milligrams as a bolus, and then 10 milligrams an hour as an infusion. They compared that to placebo, and like previous trial, these results were pretty dramatic. Mortality was 32% with placebo as compared to 7% with treatment. But 32% is really high, considering these aren't just ICU patients. These are ICU and ward patients. And I do wonder, you know, maybe this is all just due to chance. This is a small trial, and they randomized three to one. So there were only 20 patients in total in that placebo group, and 20 patients is just a tiny number. It's prone to error. So again, there's a lot of things wrong here. I just don't trust the results of this trial at all. I definitely would not change my practice based on the trial. But it's important because this trial and that confalinary study that I talked about first combined to make up more than 20%, more than one-fifth of the total of the Cochrane Review. I mean, that gives us 80% to go, but still, this is pretty low-quality research. And so my trust in the results of that Cochrane Review are starting to vanish a bit. We do have at least a slightly better paper from a methodologic standpoint coming up next, and this is uh, Tories 2015. So it's multicenter, it's double blind, it's placebo controlled. This time they compared methylprednisolone, they gave 0.5 milligrams per kilogram IV every 12 hours for five days, and they did have a placebo controlled. It's again adult patients with severe pneumonia, and one interesting criteria you had to have a CRP over 150. And they really wanted to focus on this subgroup of patients with a high CRP because they thought that steroids make the most sense. They'd be the most helpful in patients with that high inflammatory response. So that's really interesting, but it does limit the generalizability of these results to the average patient we're going to be seeing in the emergency department. So they screened 519 patients to find the 120 that they ultimately included. So that's again, like that selection bias that Dr. Morris was telling us about. And their primary outcome it's an interesting one. It's very broadly defined, quote unquote, treatment failure. And I don't, will say that they did show a statistically significant benefit in treatment failure. So Justin, that treatment failure sounds a bit fishy for like some data drudging. You know, it's, it's not a very hard, clear outcome measure for sure. I mean, it's definitely something we've talked about on Journal Jam before. These composite outcomes have a habit of combining things that you know, we really care about with a bunch of other things that we just don't. Uh, so when you dig into it here, the only difference between the groups seems to be that there was less radiologic progression of disease between days three and five in the steroid group. You know, there was no difference in mortality. There was no difference in mechanical ventilation. There was no difference in septic shock. The only difference was something on an x-ray that most of us really don't care about at all. So again, this trial isn't very convincing to me. This does not make me want to prescribe steroids. I think you're rather uh, rough on the uh, x-rays. I know I like to keep my own personal x-rays very close to heart, but I won't share them with anyone else. 
But I, I totally agree with you. I mean, you. if it had been bedside ultrasound, I would be much more convinced. Come on. <laughs> this is 2020. Absolutely. No, but you know, your point is, is so important here that it's hard to get two radiologists to agree on radiographic progression, let alone use that as a um, you know, outcome for a study like this, which also took, I think, almost eight years to complete for a very small sample size. So radiological progression of disease is not a patient-oriented outcome, nor is it free of bias. So while this is a pretty good, decently-sized study, it did not show any patient-oriented improvement. Uh, So far, we have a few poorly done small studies that do show some benefit and one relatively well-done study that shows no benefit. Are there any more convincing studies? Justin, what's next? Yeah, so we're getting close to the end of our our quick review that gives us a sense of this literature. The next trial is called the STEP trial. It's Bloom 2015. It's very similar to last. So it's technically positive, but the steroids really didn't change the things that I care about. It's it's another big multi-center trial, randomized 800 patients this time, community-acquired pneumonia. You either got prednisone 50 milligrams orally every day, or you got placebo. And their primary outcome was... This thing that Dr. Morris was talking about earlier, time to clinical stability. So a lot like time to hospital discharge, and it was better with steroids, three days versus four and a half days. But again, none of those important outcomes, the things I really care about changed. Mortality, ICU admission, recurrent pneumonias, hospital readmission, they were all exactly the same. There was a little bit more hyperglycemia in the steroid group. So, I mean, again, they didn't change anything I care about. And I do worry. I think the outcome here is sort of predictable. Clinical stability is measured in things like fever and heart rate. Steroids make those look better, but is the patient really better? I'm not convinced. I think this paper is really important to think about on a few levels. One of them is the patients were less severely ill. So we're talking mostly people who get admitted to to wards. And the concept of the downsides of steroids come more into play. In fact, I think one of the things that people like myself are concerned about with widespread use of steroids are the unintended but expected consequences, such as in-hospital hyperglycemia. And those are not a minor issue, right? Patients get hyperglycemia, then somebody gives them some insulin, then they go hypoglycemic, and, you know, it, it really leads to a whole cascade of potential problems that you might not necessarily uncover in a randomized controlled trial that may be carefully monitored. But in the real world, uh, those issues can be exacerbated by a fair amount. And I think in that study, it was about one in every 12 or 13 uh, patients, you ended up seeing an increase in hyperglycemia. I think the absolute difference was 8%. So that's pretty substantial, especially when we're not having a hard outcome benefit, as you've pointed out. Yeah. So that brings up a little bit about, you know, whether the harms might even outweigh any of the benefits. Um, That's certainly something we need to think about with steroids. Although I think the harms of steroids have, have been overblown, especially for what we're doing in the emergency department is just giving one dose of, of a steroid. You know, that's very different than someone on chronic steroids and the, the complications associated with chronic steroids, but we'll talk a little bit more about harms later. Now we've got, I believe, one more study 
to review for CAP and steroids. So far, the better studies that we've seen show no important improved patient outcomes, while the poor studies show some benefit. Justin, hit us with the last steroid for CAP study. Yeah, so obviously we didn't talk about every single study. There were 17 in that Cochrane review, but the ones we picked, I think, give you a good idea of what the literature looks like. This last one is not in the Cochrane review, and it's a really interesting study design. Uh, it's the Improve Gap trial by Lloyd in 2019. And this is actually a step wedge cluster randomized trial where they're implementing a bundle of four different interventions that they thought had reasonable evidence to improve outcomes in pneumonia. One of those things was steroids, but there are three other things they looked at. All of them seem very reasonable to me. So there was a rule-based switch from IV to oral antibiotics. There was getting people up and mobilizing them early. And there was a screening tool for malnutrition all seem reasonable. Uh, So they randomized 800 community-acquired pneumonia patients. It's eight hospitals in Australia. Now, obviously, they're looking at four different things at the same time. So it's a little bit harder to comment specifically on steroids. But those other three all seem like very reasonable things to me. Uh, And at the end of the day, if there had been a benefit and we were trying to figure out which one was causing the benefit, we could argue all day long but there was no benefit. There was no change in hospital length of stay. There was no change in mortality or readmission. The only things that changed were an increase in hyperglycemia and more GI bleeds. Which of the four interventions do you think was causing those? Yeah. All right. So we've got the Cochrane View plus this 2019 study. They sound a little bit promising depending on which way you look at it. Um, But I really didn't hear anything that seemed too convincing as we went through the the trials. So the question is like, what what does all of this really mean? You know, when I see a patient with community acquired pneumonia, should I be prescribing steroids or not? You know, should I continue my practice of only giving steroids to the COPDers and the chronic steroid patients, adrenal patients, or should I give them to only the most severe cases? You know, the patients heading for the ICU. If I do give steroids only for patients heading for the ICU, why not let the intensivist just make that decision? since I don't think that steroids have been shown to be a time-dependent treatment. You know, there's no huge rush to give them. Dr. Morris, in terms of like the timing and the indications for steroids, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think if you asked me the same question a year ago, I'd probably think about it slightly differently emotionally. But based on the evidence, I'm going to say the following. One is that there really is very weak evidence to suggest a strong benefit of steroids. I think what we do know is the relative harms are quite minor in patients who are heading to the ICU who are going to be carefully monitored. And in that situation, when you are concerned about the patient's overall outcome and there's a reasonable likelihood of mortality, then it's reasonable to at least consider giving steroids with the clear proviso that it's not based on solid data showing an overall benefit, but additionally, we don't really have evidence to suggest that it is not beneficial either. We're really left with poor quality data that doesn't guide us very much. But again, I am contextualizing this a little bit after what we've learned and we'll talk about later on with uh, COVID-19. Yeah, I I agree with everything that you've, you've said there. 
it's hard to be too dogmatic either way. The only real conclusion here is that the evidence isn't very good. Uh, And as I was writing it up, it reminded me a lot of the evidence that we had seen for TXA for GI bleeds, uh, which is another topic we were preparing for this Journal Jam series. And the Cochrane Review used to say that there was a big mortality benefit from TXA in GI bleeds, but all the studies were exactly like what we just reviewed. They were small and they were pretty poor quality. And you get one really good trial, the big halted trial this year, and there's no benefit, if anything, a little bit of harm. And I think that's just a really good evidence-based medicine take-home lesson. Unfortunately, too many of our topics just don't have great evidence, but it's easy to be led astray by small, low-quality trials. There's a reason that a single good RCT overrides a meta-analysis most of the time is because combining a lot of crappy little trials does not make gold by any means. The only thing I would also add is those of us in the medical community should be agitating for what is clearly an important trial to carry out. Community-acquired pneumonia is a really important driver of hospital admissions, you know, patient quality of life and outcomes. And if we're going to make a significant difference on this, it's unlikely that it's going to come from new innovations in antimicrobial therapy. I think we've seen that already. But there is an opportunity for identifying a potential means of improvement, but that would require a well-designed multi-center randomized control trial. One other thing that's worth doing here, it's way too easy. The last line of every Cochrane review is always, you know, more more research is needed. Uh, So it's easy to throw up your uh, hands in the air and just stop there. But I I think there are some conclusions or at least some things we should talk about about this uh, data overall. And maybe one of the first things that I think we should mention is the exclusions from these trials. And exclusions in both ways are really important to consider here. So they excluded anybody who had any chance of harm in these studies, anybody who was at high risk of side effects. So, you know, things we're talking about, heart failure, high blood pressure, any kind of uh, ulcers, any kind of hyperglycemia, diabetes. And so if you take this weak evidence and start over-applying steroids, the harms may be much higher than what you're seeing in these trials. However, the the opposite side of that coin is that they also excluded everybody who we clearly know needs steroids. So if you have asthma, if you have COPD, if you are on chronic steroids and need that stress dose of steroids, you didn't get this in the, get into these trials. Uh, and so we definitely shouldn't be cavalier about this based on the evidence. We shouldn't be saying, oh, you just have pneumonia, you don't need uh, steroids. So we need to be very careful about who these results apply to in clinical practice. I think the other really important thing to consider about, and uh, we only briefly mentioned it, but in the Cochrane Review, there was a subgroup that is quite interesting. So when they look at the healthier patients, the less severe pneumonia, they see no benefit, but they start to see a benefit in the more severe patients. Let's be clear, subgroups are hypothesis generating. I, I don't believe that we can definitively say this helps in ICU patients, but we have to consider evidence from other sources. Uh, so do steroids help in septic shock? I, that's still, <laughs> there's a lot of debate there. We could probably do a whole episode on that, but there is some evidence that steroids might help in septic shock. Do steroids help in ARDS? Similar, there, there's some questions about that evidence, but 
it looks like steroids might help in ARDS. And so what does severe pneumonia look like? It looks like septic shock in ARDS. Uh, And so if you were going to give steroids to a patient already because you think that they have ARDS or because you think they're going into septic shock, uh, again, this evidence doesn't overrule that. I think there may be a role in the sickest of the sick patients. We just don't have good evidence to to prove it one way or another. But if I was going to use steroids, I definitely would not use them in my garden variety pneumonia patient. Definitely not somebody who I'm sending home with a script almost certainly not somebody I'm just sending to the ward, but if they're going to the ICU, all of a sudden I'm thinking about it. I think there are some other indications that may lead me to give steroids. All right. So for run of the mill community acquired pneumonia, who you're sending home from the emergency department, I think we'd all agree that steroids don't play much of a role at all. Let's talk about influenza. So we're going to get to COVID shortly, but first, we're just starting flu season as we record this, and the flu is not that much different than COVID. So the question is, might steroids help in influenza? Justin, is, is there much evidence here to guide us? I mean, I feel bad even bringing this up. We just spent so much time talking about, you know, how bad the evidence is in steroids in in pneumonia, but at least we had RCTs there. Uh, According to the most recent Cochrane review for steroids and influenza, there are zero RCTs looking at steroids, but they did find 10 observational trials. And the conclusion of the Cochrane review was actually that steroids were associated with increased mortality, increased secondary infections, and an increased ICU length of stay. Oh boy, that that does not sound good. <laughs> now, I mean, again, we have to be very con- uh, careful with these conclusions. This is observational data. And if you ask me, the patients who are sicker are probably also the ones who are going to get uh, steroids. And that might be the explanation for the results here. But either way, we have no good evidence to guide us on steroids and influenza. Okay. So lots of bias in the uh, in the observational studies. So we don't really know if they're that bad for influenza patients, but certainly no good evidence that they help. Again, this is a a situation where our perspective has probably changed uh, post-COVID-19, and which we'll be talking about. But because of the poor quality of the data, I think it definitely justifies a future randomized control trial. And I wouldn't discount the harm signal in observational studies to suggest that it may not be beneficial in properly conducted trials. Yeah, I agree. That's the flu and run-of-the-mill community-acquired pneumonia. Let's go on now to COVID pneumonia. So I've actually been giving steroids pretty much to all the patients I see in the ED with presumed COVID pneumonia who require supplemental oxygen and who are being admitted with COVID pneumonia as their primary diagnosis. And this is based, I have to admit, just on a handful of not amazing trials, which we'll get to soon. Now, maybe if there was something better for COVID pneumonia, I wouldn't be so liberal with steroids. But when it comes down to it, uh, I ask myself, you know, if my wife or my mother or my brother or my father, if they were admitted to hospital with COVID pneumonia and they weren't doing so well on supplemental oxygen, would I want them to get steroids knowing that there's really nothing else that can help them? I would almost certainly say yes. But we are talking about the evidence here. So, Justin, let's talk about the evidence for steroids for COVID pneumonia. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, unlike this, the steroids for community acquired pneumonia, I'm pretty sure everybody's already heard this and maybe has already made up their own, their own mind. I mean, even my lawyer knows about steroids for COVID right now. You know, I don't think we need to go through the trials in the the same level of detail. At this point, there are four published RCTs, although it depends on how long it takes you to edit this audio. There may be more by then. Uh, And we've seen some results by uh, from a few other RCTs in just preliminary form as well. Everybody knows the big trial was the recovery trial. So it was 6,400 hospitalized patients, and they uh, used dexamethasone six milligrams a day. Uh, Now, it wasn't a miracle drug by any means. Mortality was still 22%, but that's better than the 25% that was in the usual care arm of that trial. It did decrease mortality. Um, I think there are a few things that everybody needs to know about this trial. Number one, it's not blinded, so it's not a perfect trial by any means, and that should limit our certainty in these results a little bit. And second, if you look at the subgroups, the benefit was really only seen in the sicker patients, those who were requiring oxygen at least. If you didn't need oxygen, it actually looks like maybe dexamethasone could be a little bit harmful. All right. So yeah, that was the big recovery trial. Um, the nice thing about that trial is, I mean, 6,400 patients, that's a lot of patients. So those results are a little bit more convincing than all those trials we were talking about with CAP. There's one more dexamethasone trial for COVID, and that was the uh, CODEX trial. Uh, Justin, what's the lowdown on the CODEX trial? Yeah, so very briefly, it's 299 ICU patients in Brazil. They used a slightly higher dose of dexamethasone, and the their end result was that there was less mechanical ventilation when you gave dexamethasone. Uh, mortality in this trial wasn't statistically a difference, but it was actually 6% better with uh, dex. The big problem, again, is that this is just not a blinded trial. People will look at these trials and tell us, you know, mortality is an objective outcome. And so we don't have to be so worried about the fact that they're not blinded. But I do worry, you know, what does mortality look like in a modern ICU? Most people don't just die spontaneously. The decision is often around withdrawing care. And so we have to remember that if it's an unblinded trial, bias could actually play a role in mortality. You you might give people who got steroids a couple extra days. Uh, They might actually look better because their heart rate was a little bit lower. So the steroids might be influencing prognosis, which unfortunately in modern ICUs could influence that seemingly objective outcome of mortality. Yeah, that's a good explanation. All right. So those are the uh, two decks for COVID pneumonia trials. Uh, What about hydrocortisone? Yeah, so there's two trials looking at hydrocortisone. Both of them are actually larger trials that are ongoing uh, looking at steroids and community-acquired pneumonia. So we might get better data on that in the future. Uh, the first one is the CAPE COVID trial. It's the only placebo-controlled trial of the four that we have. Uh, unfortunately, it was stopped early after only 149 patients because they liked the results of the recovery trial. Uh, and so they decided there was no longer equipoise for them to continue run, running their trial. So technically, this is a negative trial. It's not statistically significant, but the numbers do all look better in the steroid group. I could probably rant for a while here. It's a bit of a pet peeve of mine, but you know, a single unblinded trial is definitely not enough to prove that steroid work, steroids work. So I don't think that there was any way that we lost equipoise. And if we're going to stop these trials early, unfortunately, that leaves us with a lot of questions that actually could end up harming patients. I don't think trials should be stopped early just because of a single trial's results uh, personally. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the challenges trialists have, especially with COVID and conducting ongoing randomized trials after highly publicized results are available, 
is that it makes it very difficult to enroll patients when, whether it's the president of the United States or you know, the largest press release possible makes it onto the front page of the newspaper or, uh, you know, the top of the internet page. Uh, everyone wants that treatment, regardless of what the reality is, or in this situation, the clinical epidemiology suggests. And so it makes it very difficult to enroll people in trials when perhaps Justin and I may have uncertainty, but to the person who doesn't necessarily have as much uncertainty or doesn't understand the nuances, what they hear is there is a treatment that is beneficial and we now want you to be randomized to either get nothing or that potentially beneficial treatment. It makes it really difficult for the trialist to enroll those patients. And I think from a pragmatic point of view, that's indeed why many of these trials do get abandoned in the face of in this situation, you know, sometimes one trial that perhaps is stopped early. And it's definitely caused challenges for, you know, some of the other therapies. In particular, I'll point out to remdesivir, which you may or may not be discussing on some other podcast, but there is a fair amount of uncertainty where the benefit is in that drug. But I think the overwhelming consensus is we're not going to be able to get good trials conducted with high enrollment because of the perceived benefit of remdesivir by by many people, regardless of what the WHO might suggest. And that, that's an incredibly important point. And it should be clear, we're, we're not specifically criticizing the the researchers here who are doing fantastic work. Uh, this, this is on all of us. COVID has really highlighted the, the the weaknesses of science in in the medical field. Uh, we're doing a lot of medicine by press release, and I, I think this is one of the values of the Journal Jam series. I, I think everybody in medicine has a responsibility to understand the scientific concepts a little bit better, so we can do our job and communicate those to the general public. Absolutely, because I mean, you don't have to look far in the times of COVID to see a lot of scientific misunderstanding, and so hopefully over time we can improve that. I don't think we're going to solve that right now. In 2020. Here, here. Well said. I couldn't agree more. All right, Justin, we've got one more trial before we wrap up. There's the remap cap trial. Oh yeah, we got a little bit off track about ranting. Eh? Yeah, so la- last trial, this one's a little bit bigger than, than the last. They stopped enrolling after uh, 614 patients looking at specifically at ICU patients with COVID and basically the exact same as the last trial. So it's statistically uh, negative, but it's a little bit too small to be have any major uh, certainty. I-, I think this trial does have an interesting tweak that people might want to think about. So there were actually two different steroid groups. Uh, One got steroids just like every other trial, like right right off the bat. The other group only got steroids if there were signs of septic shock. And although, again, they stopped early, so we don't have definitive results, I actually think that's the group that looks the best. So maybe steroids aren't for everybody. Maybe if they're going to help, they're just going to help our sickest of the sick patients. All right. So that's it for COVID. There's, correct me if I'm wrong, three of the four trials were unblinded. Yep. Three of the four trials were stopped early. Yep. And what would you say that the evidence is moderate at best? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely enough that it convinces me. Uh, I think you've already said, if you're on oxygen, I'm giving you steroids. Like Andrew said, it's going to be hard to do another RCT because I, I would want steroids if I was was on oxygen. But I think we have to at least keep in the back of our mind that there's some fairly significant uncertainty because you know we've always known unblinded trials aren't perfect. Trials that stop early aren't perfect. And we only have four total trials. Taking all of this together, I don't think I'm actually going to be changing my practice much at all based on this journal jam. You know, I'm still going to be reserving steroids in patients I see in the ED with presumed bacterial pneumonia for really, really it's four groups of patients for COPDers and asthmatics, for chronic steroid users, for adrenal patients, and then for those patients that are heading to the ICU with presumed bacterial pneumonia who, for whatever reason, have a long delay to seeing the intensivist or the admitting physician. For flu, I think it's pretty clear, no steroids. And for presumed COVID pneumonia, I'll give steroids to most patients being admitted who require supplemental oxygen to keep their sats above 90. When it comes to harms and contraindications, the serious harms, depending on which studies you look at, they, from what I can tell, are actually relatively rare in terms of the very serious harms. There was a study out of Taiwan that showed kind of scary relative risk numbers for sepsis and GI bleed and CHF with short-term steroids. But when you look at the absolute risk, it really is minuscule. You know, nonetheless, I might think twice about giving steroids for COVID pneumonia in patients with recent CHF exacerbations or or diabetics with super high sugars, or if they have, you know, a severe uncontrolled uh, hypertension. Those patients I might think twice. Any uh, further thoughts, uh, Dr. Morris, some final words? One of the things about steroids and harms, and I, I totally share your perspective about the really low volume of uh, concern regarding uh, short courses or single dose of steroids. But one of the things that we saw with some of the COVID-19 studies is the lowest risk patients, there was this at least trend, if not more so, more than that, of potential harms in those patients that rece- receive the steroids. We don't really understand what that's related to. I, I don't really buy that it's related to any kind of uh, substantial immunosuppression, although I guess it's possible. But like with almost every approach to treatment that we have, when patients are unlikely to benefit from therapy, giving them useless therapy is almost certainly going to weigh on the side of causing unnecessary harm. And I think steroids are no different. Yeah, that's a good point. And and Justin, we've discussed before how harms are generally underreported in studies uh, for various reasons. The harm thing is a tough one. I think, again, people at really high risk, since we don't have great data that steroids are of that much benefit, those are probably the ones who you want to avoid in. But like you were saying before, Dr. Morris, there's a lot of emotional overlay with these decisions sometimes. And so, you know, again, if it was a family member who who was not doing well with COVID, I probably would give steroids. Justin, any last words? The key in all of medicine is that we should never be giving a treatment if there isn't a proven benefit because everything we do does have that potential for harm. I agree with you. The absolute risk of steroids is, is pretty low. 
But I think every single one of us has probably seen a come, person come into the emergency department with harm from from steroids. So I will absolutely give it if uh, there there looks like there's a a strong benefit. I'll give it for my COVID patients. Uh, but I think we just need to be careful and selective in who we decide to give it, and not just start giving it out like candy. Because if we overuse steroids, we will see some of those harms. I like that. Careful and selective. I think that pretty much sums it up right there. That about wraps it up for this Journal Jam podcast. Uh, Until next time, remember that evidence-based medicine not only incorporates the best evidence that we've reviewed here, but also your clinical experience and the patient's values. So everyone out there, stay safe. Together, we're stronger. Thank you, Dr. Morris and Dr. Morgenstern for your really great insights. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thank you.